Not a day in the asylum The silent torment crouched On stained marble summit Within the system Throwing you on a pharmaceutical merry-go-round Impatient behind the bars and the eroded picket fence, in a place that is not your home, I crawl through your window, hold you as an infant of my own. If I could have plucked you from all discord, life would have been different for you and for me. Mother, your misery would have melted away in my arms if I could have held you as an infant of my own. Erase the tax, attacks, swipe the screaming under current of control. Let's torch the patriarchal patterns from our mind. Mother missing you has been missing a lifetime of gold around the sun and the silver lining in the pine. If I could have held you as an infant of my own, our blood flowing in a symbiotic beat, our throats swallowing the same cry, I'm coming for you, mother, to cradle you like you were my infant, give you something of me that nobody ever gave to you. Life would have been different for you and for me Not a day of homeless ground Not a day in the asylum The silent torment crouched On stained marble summit Within the system Throwing you on a pharmaceutical merry-go-round. Wow, that was really great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rochelle. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so, will you talk a little bit about what you're doing? And I'm going to get um, Hoff oh, done on the oh, phone. Oh, sure, sure. Um, actually, I would I would love it if you guys introduce yourselves. Um, Lena, go ahead and. Oh, okay. My name is uh, Lena Nelson, and I am a vocalist. I'm a singer, songwriter, um, producer, and executive producer. And I'm working on an EP, and my social media is um, at Lena Nelson Music on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks, Lena. All right, my name is Justin Imamura. I play the cajon here with Kimmy, and uh, born and raised here in San Jose, and just excited to be here. Thank you for coming, Justin. Check and see if uh, if Hofton's mic is working. Oh, sure. Uh, do you want to say hello? All right. Let me try that. Try that one more time. It's not coming. Okay, it's not coming through. Keep keep going, guys. Okay, all right. And this is George. Hi, my name is George Vargas. I just played the electric six-string instrument. Um, I'm from born and raised in San Jose, California. And um, I was also in these other bands called Cactus. You can find our EP on Facebook or bandcamp.com. And I'm also in another band called Process, which is more math rock oriented. So if you're interested in more music, feel free to check it out. Thank you. Awesome, George. All right, let's catch busy, busy. All right, hey, Bill's. Bill's going to be our next uh, poet, po- um, poet uh, coming up. Um, as soon as we. Um, yeah, I'm get, sorry, guys. We're having some phone issues here, yeah, so um, that's okay. We'll let's uh, hold on a second. Me. Yeah, yeah. We'll take a quick break here. Let me play some music, and then we'll give them a call back here in a second. I'm going to play. I'm going to play everyone um, a little bit of something that I was playing on the way over, which is Santa Gold. So here we go. All right. All right.
think we might have um, we might have solved the issue here. So let's go ahead and uh, listen to. Uh, so go ahead yes. and introduce. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Hofton. Uh, this is Halston, the co-founder and director of Cinequest. Mm-hmm. I can hear you. I, I can hear you. You might be a little low for our listeners, but I'm going to try and make it happen. I can speak up. All okay, right. sounds great. All right, so tell us a little bit about what's going on with Cinequest. Hey, you know, Cinequest it was named Best Film Festival by USA Today readers recently, and I love that because that's a vote that comes from people, audiences and artists that attend and really care about the experience uh, from around the globe, rather than just the industry. Industry's great and all, but I, I love that. And you know, Cinequest is Silicon Valley's globally loved celebration of art and technology and also futurists. And this year, uh, we're unveiling our most uh, powerful and dynamic lineup to date. I'm very excited about it. Sounds great. February 27th to March 11th, we have 130 world and U.S. premieres. Wow. These are movies Amazing. that come from incredible artists from from over 50 different countries. We're celebrating with our Maverick Spirit Awards, some renowned uh, artists, Nicolas Cage, Andy Mm -hmm. McDowell, Mm -hmm. and Tatiana Maslany. So we're jam-packed. We've got 505 screenings, events, parties, hangouts, celebrations, (laughs) workshops, and and a big night of poetry called Poets and Film on March 8th at 7 o'clock. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Wow, that I mean, I remember when I was a student. I remember Cinequest, and it was a it was a big deal back then. But this is just it's grown so much in ten years since I was a student. Yeah, it really has, and we're we're thrilled about that. We've seen audiences grow from three thousand people the first year to over one hundred five thousand now. Wow. And most important to me, these people come from all walks of life, wow. every economic strata, every culture, every process and mm-hmm. perspective and age group and uh, so it, it's, it's very cool the people that connected Cinequest and the growth is fantastic but it seems to have maintained a sense of warmth even though the, the numbers are so much bigger than they used to be. Mm-hmm. That's awesome that's awesome and so uh, you guys started incorporating poets into the Cinequest sort of world recently is that a recent addition or has it been happening for a long time? Well in uh, you know, movies are technologically <laughs> art form, and that they've they've probably more than any art form, technology based from day one. Thirty five millimeter digital movies, etc. Projectors, uh, technical needs to make the to make the film, record the film, the sound, the picture, you name it, project it. Um, the servers, so many things, internet delivery of, of files, but. It all boils down to a movie. When you love a movie, typically uh, you're going to love it because of the words, the screenplay, mm. the stories, the writing. That is the backbone, the blueprint that, that allows the artists to give and to explore life. And then that's recorded with the technologies. And we have an experience. But at the core of that is writing. Mm. So uh, writing has always been our number one love at Cinequest, ironically. Um, and even more so than movies, we celebrate that through our writer's celebration every year. Uh, we give up special awards that's been received by people like Neil Gaiman and Chuck Palahniuk, the famous writers, mm-hmm. but we've also encouraged so many new and emerging writers as well. Um, and last year we began something that, that was really, right off the bat, uh, an incredible experience for people called Poets in Film. And this year, uh, Kimmy uh, Martinez and her, her, her team is going to another level with it. Mm-hmm. It combines uh, live poets reading, mm-hmm. performance art, music, visuals, as well as we have some really, really amazing movies about poets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a movie by a renowned uh, young, it's very, very famous young filmmaker, Matt Wolf, called I Remember, a film about Joan Brainerd. Okay. And Brainerd's an iconic film, which was called I Remember. And we also have one about a 17-year-old poet, a word poet, a spoken word poet. So um, a couple of uh, really amazing movies to go with all the live performances. That sounds great. I mean, it's really uh, what you said about 
uh, writing being at the core of film is is really uh, nice to hear as writers, isn't it? Absolutely. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes we we don't have the opportunity to see our work uh, go anywhere beyond the page, and 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 sometimes beyond performance in just sort of the settings that exist. So Cinequest is really giving this opportunity to poets absolutely to do yeah. these amazing things. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, um, coming from a performance background, and now I have studied. Um, poetry it's nice to combine those two together and you get it right from the poet so the gut is right there while you're watching it a live experience so that's nice too it's also i'm really excited about the films that they're showing this year um joe brainyard is part of the new york school oh wow poets yeah so um it's 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 just going to be spectacular i'm very excited yeah, well, you know, a lot of us who've been poets in, in San Jose area and beyond San Jose in this area, you know, um, we have a great legacy of poetry in oh, the area. Yes. Uh-huh. And to Absolutely. see this support at Cinequest is really exciting, and it's I'm, I feel really grateful for that. Well, Cinequest has been great throughout the years for, uh, 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 you know, um, with emerging artists as well as established artists. They have, you know, collaborated and, and helped a mm-hmm. lot of um, artists out and and so it's it's nice to be a part of that community. Right. It's a, a bigger community. Right. So. so thank you so much, Hofton, for telling us about Cinequest. Is there anything else that you want us to, to know uh, as we <laughs> move forward? Well, you can learn about the lineup on Cinequest.org, um, tickets, events, et cetera. But, you know, Tim, you mentioned community, and that's something that I'm very proud of uh, about the live experience because you know, it can be a first-time community. You're welcome to come this year. We, we love, uh, it's a very welcoming group of people. There's nothing intimidating about showing up to uh, the Cinequest Film Festival. It's not some velvet rope deal that you get to, you know, mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. Some, some dude uh, pay off somebody <laughs> with a bunch of money to get behind the red velvet <laughs> or look a certain way, you know. It's welcoming to all people. Yeah. And, and that community that grows because of that is really amazing because I find that, Folks tend to hang out with people that are somewhat like themselves, uh, mm-hmm. age groups, yeah. ways of thinking, etc. But at, at Cinequest, it's not the case. It's a community of people that are uh, an amazing uh, cross-section of the world. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's very, very fun and inspiring. Oh, well, thank you so much for uh, being patient with me in the phone system here uh, tonight, Hofton. And I'm really grateful for this opportunity to have spoken with you. And we're going to continue the show. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hofton. Thank you. Um, so those of you just tuning in, you're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org, uh, where we can stream from anywhere. And I know that some people listen from New Zealand because I have friends in New wow. Zealand who listen. Very cool. <laughs> International. <laughs> <laughs> but here, here at KKUP, we are um, non-commercial radio staffed completely by volunteers and supported 100% by our listeners. Um, we provide alternate source of music and information not readily available for other stations uh, on other stations and we've been doing that for 40 years um longer than i've been alive <laughs> <laughs> i shouldn't say that the listeners are gonna be like you just be quiet <laughs> <laughs> by maintaining a separation we missed the 70s I know, right? they I were really groovy <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know um well okay so um, so we, so because we don't have corporate backing, underwriting, or any of other sorts of funding that might uh, place demands on our programming, we're free to entertain and educate the listening community in whatever way we see fit, <laughs> which is, which is why you're here. No, I'm just kidding. Yay. <laughs> um, so if you, we're if just you really <laughs> funny looking. <laughs> I know, I know. If you find this station worth supporting, please become a member. Uh, you can do that by going online. If you're already listening on kkup.org, you can click become a member or you can give me a call here after the show when the phones will be working, I promise. Um, and if you give us a call, the phone number is 408-260-2999 and the new 831 number is 831-480-1999. <laughs> Our musicians had a duck out of the way. I, I was laughing earlier because I've been so bad. I, I don't remember the KKUP numbers because they're always in front of me. So I don't have to remember them. You know, like, yeah, we, I was wondering about that. I was like, I don't remember it. Uh, the last <laughs> time I was here and I was like, 
Wow. Okay. It's, it's big. It's big. Big bold numbers in the you back. You have to there. put it to music so you can uh, repeat it all the time. I know. I've got to make jingle. a jingle. Yeah, you're right. That's it. A That's jingle. it. We need a jingle. All right. So let's get back to poetry. Um, uh, Kimmy, do you guys have some other pieces to perform? Yes, Bill does, and he can introduce himself. And Hi. <laughs> Bill Cozzini, um For the Poets in uh, Film Night, I'll be performing a piece that's basically related to my grandfather's funeral. Mm. And so this got me going back into my death, dying, and religion course days. And I pulled up an old poem uh, that I'd written just after, as I was in my early 30s, and I'd finally lost friends of every age group, friends from high school, friends, you know, girlfriends, uh, buddies, and just started recognizing how much death was around and how special certain people were. So this poem is on so many dying. Our life is an orbit, or maybe what we orbit is life. There are patterns we return to, constellations, seasons, words. With time, this orbit expands and distorts the source past less often. Streams of starlight clean and cut and fill us. We relearn that we know nothing and find nothing harder to define. You, dear friend, are seen less often. Sincerity of intentions foiled by the power of time. Our faces show the scars and delights of the limitless. When will that last sweet moment be when we pass with all the brilliance of our decay. Mm. Wow. That was beautiful. Really great. So um, is this the first time you've performed with CineQuest? Uh, no, I was luckily, lucky enough to be part of it last year. And but it's his first time to MC. I will be MCing. Kimmy and I will be introducing everybody. Very I will be excited. performing a poem with Kimmy as well as uh, getting a chance to do my own solo. Nice. <laughs> nice. So this is exciting. And so this is the second year that you, we've been, you, uh, you guys have been doing poetry. Yes, this is the second year. Um, and we're doing it um, in collaboration with Reed Magazine mm -hmm. um, from San Jose State University. And uh, Kathleen Miller is the professor and the chief, in, um, I was going to say chief employees. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, well, yeah. I remember Kathleen Miller. <laughs> <laughs> No. Chief and editor, and um, so um, I presented this to her last year, and it just it worked out, and so we're hoping that this continues, and um, so, uh, yeah, this is our second year. It was good th the first time, and we're doing it again this time, only it's going to be a little bit more theatrical, mm -hmm. and we've added musicians, as, you, as you've heard, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, incredible musicians and, and vocalists, mm -hmm. and um, we'll have funny costumes, Yeah, and like I said, we're funny looking, so you have to come. <laughs> see us <laughs> i'm really excited and i hope uh, all you fans of poetry out there are excited about having poetry be so included in something as huge as cinequest oh yeah like i said they're they're great they work with all types of artists and it, it's just great to be a part of that that's great do we have any more poems um if bill wants to do one other one um i'll do one more sure. yes bill one <laughs> please, more please okay. please uh it was death dying in religion so i've got to pull in a, yeah. a god poem i would like well before you go, I, I would really love to hear that first poem again. Do you think we could hear that first poem again? Actually, yeah. Let's, yeah can so, we well, no, yeah. you first. You first. And then, well, he's out because he, I see he put his instrument away. <laughs> you should never put your instrument away when you're in a radio station. <laughs> oh. the, the DJ's always going to ask all. you to come back on for an encore if it's good enough, right? <laughs> So I'm going to ask you guys to do that one more time, but they'll do that after you read yours. Okay. Oh, okay. It's called God. My God is greater than yours. My God is female, male, and the other sexualities not yet declared, defined, evolved, or perceived. My God is both good and evil, therefore capable of understanding and judging, unlike those one-sided gods. My God is everything. And since I am something, even during my nothingness, and something being part of everything, I am part of God, part God, son and daughter of. My God is so great and powerful that any blaspheme I utter is laughed off in the way that the earth doesn't mind animals pissing on it. My God is no coward and never commands preachers or simpletons to carry out or profess the judgments best executed by the perfect. Do not feel excluded. My God is just the creation of an insecure human mind like yours. That's a nice poem. That's a really good poem. That's a really good poem. I like that a lot. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for reading and being on the show, and thanks for being an, an MC for CineQuest, man. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And both of yous are, uh, you, both of yous, both of yous. These <laughs> both. Yous, hey, that's my both. kind of talk. <laughs> <laughs> I feel at home now. <laughs> <laughs> you've both been on the show before, right? <laughs> I have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go back to that first. Let's go back to that first poem. I want to hear it one more time. Okay, okay. this is "If You Were uh, My Own," and Lena Nelson will start. Okay, life would have been different for you and for me. Not a day of homeless ground. Not a day in the asylum. The silent torment crouched on stained sorrow summit within the system. Throwing you on a pharmaceutical merry-go-round. Impatient behind the bars and the eroded picket fence in a place that is not your home. I crawl through your window, hold you as an infant of my own. If I could have plucked you from all discord, life would have been different for you and for me. Mother, your misery would have melted away in my arms. If I could have held you as an infant of my own, erase the attacks, swipe the screaming undercurrent of control. Let's torch the patriarchal patterns from our mind. Mother, missing you has been missing a lifetime of gold around the sun and the silver lining in the pine. If I could have held you as an infant of my own, our blood flowing in a symbiotic beat, our throats swallowing the same cry, I'm coming for you, mother, to cradle you like you were my infant, give you something of me that nobody ever gave to you. Life would have been different for you and for me. Not a day of homeless ground. Not a day in the asylum. The silent torment crouched on stained marble cement within the system. Nice. <laughs> thank you so much, Rochelle, for having us. Yeah, this is th great. Thank you so much for dealing with all, uh, you know, here at KKUP, we are an, an amazing and wonderful place. But when it's community radio and it's community driven, it's, hey, it's sometimes... It's, it's absolutely entertaining. <laughs> Absolutely it gets me in the mood perfect. on being on the air. Come on. This is great. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to read the bio for my um, interview here. So tonight's show is... Um, well, my interview with uh, Mei Li Chai. And Mei Li Chai is the author of eight books, including three novels, My Lucky Face, Dragon Chica, and Tiger Girl. Two works of memoir, The Girl from Purple Mountain, which is co-authored with her father, Winberg Chai, and Hapa Girl, a collection of short stories and essays. Glamorous Asians, a nonfiction book about the culture and history of China, China A to Z, and her translation into English of Chinese author Ba Jin's 1934 autobiography. Her own books have been translated into German, Hebrew, and Chinese. And I was lucky enough to read alongside uh, Mei Li Chai at the Bay Area Poetry Marathon in San Francisco. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, so I don't know why they invite me. <laughs> I have no idea why anyone invites me anyway. But, but, but Li is amazing. She's an amazing person. And, um, and I really feel like the work that she's done as a writer is it, it, she's trailblazed so many spaces for those of us who don't often have our stories heard. So this is my um, interview with Meili, and um, I'll be back at the at nine o'clock to uh, give you a call and send you off to your next DJ. So here we go. Thank you guys again for being in the show. Thank you. In on, you know, uh, uh, Monterey Bay. 
Oh, Monterey Bay. Monterey Bay. Okay. Yeah. Go Otters. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Otters are pretty ruthless. I had a friend who was in a kayak who said that they were being very playful with her and she felt as though they were going to knock over her kayak. Oh, well, they're very strong. I mean, well, we're the gators, and they always personify that as an alligator. <laughs> but actually, I was recently I recently told that the gator that is the mascot of, of SF State is not really meant to be an alligator. It's meant to be the Golden Gate. So oh. we're an, we are actually um, an inanimate object. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, the gator, that makes sense. Or maybe yeah. you're like the gatekeeper kind of, too. <laughs> Yeah, that's not as good. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, that's got a, That's still a little bit better than my high school um, mascot. I'm from Hollister, and we were the Hollister Hay Balers. Okay. All right. Well, that's a that's an honest way to make a living. So. <laughs> anyway, Maylee, it's so nice to finally talk to you. Um, thank you for taking your time um, to talk with me about the work that you do. Thank you. I am so honored to be on your show. Well, thanks. Um, so I read a little bit about you on your website, which is just all of this really amazing and impressive stuff. Um, but tell me a little bit about yourself and what brought you to writing and, you know, whatever, wherever this conversation leads us. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> that is that is the question, is it not? Um, I guess. I don't know what brought me to writing. I guess reading brought me to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of those kids who was always reading, um, so there was that. And then I and then um, I went through some very uh, huge life changes when I was growing up, mm-hmm. which is probably what brought me to the compulsion to write. Mm. Um, it's just this, this feeling of constantly being um, erased. Mm. Um, I was born in California, mm-hmm. and that's in Southern California, actually, and that was fine. Grew up in a very kind of diverse, multicultural environment. Um, my mother's white. My father was chi- my father's Chinese. Um, we grew up in a college town. My mother, you know, had gone to school in Mexico, so we had a lot of you know Mexican artists and Mexican American writers who would be coming to our house. My father, there was not a large Chinese population, if you can believe it or not. And back in the day. Um, but he would bring, you know, a lot of people from the university over. So I grew up feeling very normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was six. We moved to the East Coast. Um, my father got a job at the City College of New York, um, Harlem campus. And it was, you know, New York City, super diverse once again. And mm-hmm. we got close to his family. Every week we would, you know, meet with his family in Manhattan. Um, so I grew up with a kind of very diverse but Chinese-American mm-hmm. kind of upbringing. And then when I was 12, we moved to rural South Dakota. <laughs> and um, in that town, we were the first um, mixed-race Chinese man married to a white woman family anyone had ever seen. Wow. And people would literally um, just stop on the street when we walked downtown, uh, like just going grocery shopping. Right. People would stop their pickup trucks and <laughs> stare at us. Um, people started driving by our house on the weekends oh, oh to God. stare at us. Um, oh. And then people started shooting. Men started shooting. Um, and just over the years, it was just living, living hell. Oh, my God. Um, the violence just accelerated. Um, and I think that these experiences um, were very perplexing to me as a child growing up. And I just I couldn't understand what was wrong with people, <laughs> you know, like, and just how my normal could be someone else's worst nightmare, right? and where my very existence could be seen as a threat to, I don't know, life on earth. Um, <laughs> I was told literally as a child to my face that um, God didn't want the races to mix, yeah. and that mixed race people like me, were a sign of the end times when the devil would reign on earth for a thousand years. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that's what made me a writer. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, pretty much. I mean, maybe I would have just been a happy reader um, <laughs> if you had stayed in not New York. For these experiences. <laughs> I I didn't get to read in your books yet, but I'm hoping that you will give us a nice tester of everything that you've got in the works. I have a book coming out next year. Okay. Or actually, um, it's going to be coming out in fall of 2018. Okay. And it's called Useful Phrases for Immigrants, and it's a short story collection. And that's the that's what I've been working on the past. Oh, I'd say four four years or so, mm-hmm. and um, this started with just um, looking at some of the political rhetoric about globalization, mm-hmm. which sounds really boring and academic. I mean, it does not sound like, like a really interesting short story collection, but I noticed, like, just look at the last election. Mm. Who was blaming whom for all of our economic problems? <laughs> you know, we have people saying, you know, China, 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 right. China is causing, you know, all these issues. Like, look, everybody on earth is feeling um, pain and anxiety related mm. to changing economic systems and globalization. So I'm focusing in these short stories on kind of how um, this anxiety um, exists both in China and in the Chinese diaspora. So it's kind of flipping this whole notion that only white Americans feel anxiety about globalization. No, guess what? Everybody does. Yes. <laughs> so I'm coming from my, my family and kind of, you know, people I know and people I've, I've um, seen and, I, you know, I, I used to teach in China and mm. I keep in touch with my former students. I mean, this is a global phenomenon. Oh, for sure. I have, um, I had a student who visited recently, um, she and I were talking about, you know, the different uh, what we called the waves of migration from China. I, and she was saying that sometimes she feels really upset when she sees Chinese people in in the Bay Area and San Francisco today because she's from an older generation of migrators mm-hmm. that have already gone through all this stuff, establishing themselves. And sometimes she feels embarrassed because she feels like like the new Chinese immigrants are sort of embarrassing her in this weird way that like teenagers are embarrassed of their parents in some ways. And I thought that was so interesting and something that I never even thought about, like how different waves of migration can affect each other and affect each other in, in, in um, self-consciousness and also frustration and like you're saying... And I mean, and and everyone's not the same. And, I, and I'm certain that many um, new Chinese immigrants are probably embarrassed by what they see. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a two-way street. No, um, for sure. You know, it's a it's a learning curve for everybody. And as I think it was um, uh, Alice Walker who had said, quoting an ancient proverb, "You can't walk into the same, you can't step into the same river twice." <laughs> Um, and so, you know, even though people have walked this path before and generations have migrated to the United States before, it's always a new experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's always these different levels of assimilation and the assimilation process. I mean, today, just today, I, I was having a conversation with one of my coworkers in, in the city of Watsonville, and and she was saying, well, Rochelle, because we were talking about race and socioeconomic mm-hmm. status and all this stuff, and she said, well, Rochelle... I didn't think you were Mexican. I thought you were a white girl when you came in here. And I was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and I was like, how did you get that? And she's like, well, I mean, the way you carry yourself, the way you talk and all this other stuff. And, and I've always seen my, you know, so the way I identify and the way I read myself is completely different from the way someone else will read me based on all of these other things that they've got going on. And so it's just, it's, it's just an interesting discussion. Um, you know, we're, we're having this, I think we are having a national discussion about, you know, what it means to be a person of color, what it means to be a representation of people of color. But inside of what that... What it means to be American. Well, yeah, you know, you're right. No. And I think inside of those, there's a lot of complications and there are a lot of things that alter that conversation in one direction or another. Yes, you put that really, really well. It's funny. I know it's funny how others perceive us and then how we perceive ourselves. And, you know, there's sometimes such a huge disconnect. So you and I started talking a little bit on Instagram, and I'm sorry if I sounded like a jerk or anything online. But no. I, you posted this picture of um, a book that was discussing the ways in which Chinese immigrants were disenfranchised in Mexico. Which, yes. which I found so interesting. Yes, the book is called um, 
me see, um, let me see if I it's called Chino Anti-Chinese Racism in Mexico 1880 to 1940 by um, Jason Oliver Chang and he's looking specifically at these um, movements to blame the Chinese immigrant population for everything from the plague to I'm not kidding mm. um, to <laughs> spreading disease to a lot of um, economic hardships mm -hmm. and um, the goal was to drive out the Chinese population. Um, and one of the things that he says that the government was trying to do in doing this was to rally um, the rest of the population around government plans which were being said, oh, we're doing this for the people. See, we're protecting you from outsiders. But really what they were trying to do was disenfranchise um, the indigenous population. Right. There was um, a, a you know, full-out war with the, uh, I guess, the Yaqui tribe. Mm. Um, and this was a way to rally more people around these government plans. And so mm -hmm. they just used the Chinese as a scapegoat. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's kind and of they an talked about Oh, go ahead. They, they talked about massacres, um, the largest massacre um, was in the Sonoran state and they killed some like 300 Chinese in this one town and their families and then they drove out thousands upon thousands of Chinese immigrants and their Mexican-born Mexican -born wives and um, their mixed-race children. Jeez. Um, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's a really interesting uh, history that I don't think that most of us are taught. No, not at all. That's, that's and it... You know, I mean, it makes me think about the research I did for my own book and um, specifically my hometown, Hollister, and San Benito County. I remember reading in this book called um, Chinese Gold. It's like this uh, history book. I forgot who wrote it. But anyway, uh, they were saying that San Benito County's anti-Asian laws in the, 18, in the, in the late 1800s were like models for other places. And a lot of people thought that a lot of the anti-Asian sentiment was was um, happening in San Francisco, which it was, but in fact, it was these really rural communities like San Benito that were doing it, were doing it up, you know, they were charging tax for air, for, for airspace. For air, yes. oh my goodness. Yeah, so, so then, so the justification of, I guess, the department that was enforcing these laws was to um, force Chinese people to be in similar spaces, right? To, to be in small spaces mm -hmm. so that they couldn't live in different spots because if they moved to different spots, then they would be heavily taxed. So it was, it would behoove them to stay in one space. Yeah, they want the labor, but they don't want people to become citizens. You know, then as now, right? Like <laughs> why don't we have a path to citizenship? Oh, we want the cheap labor, but God forbid they become citizens or their children become citizens and then they have rights. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's just, it's, all of this is all, it just all echoes and moves into each other. It's like, it's like a liquid movement. <laughs> I don't know. It's like there's what's the difference between the anti-Asian sentiment and the anti-Guatemalan sentiment today in, in the Bay Area, I mean, the Monterey Bay Area, where, you know, there's a lot of new immigrants that are not from Mexico, but from deeper and Central yeah. America who don't even speak Spanish. And so all of our, you know, attempts to communicate with them are completely useless because nobody here is working to, to speak with them, you know. That is fascinating um, and really interesting, and I don't see a national discu discussion about this at all. No, I mean it's it's not. I don't know. It's it's just weird, you know. Um, I think that sometimes those of us who are on the, on the ground watching these things happen, I think that's why I'm a writer, and it sounds like that in some ways that's what you're doing as a writer and as a reader. It's like I want to uncover all of these things, you know uncover them and expose them and then also I think a lot of what your poetry does is commemorate mm. I remember the beautiful poem you read at the Bay Area Poetry Marathon um, this past fall and um, talking about brown hands working in the soil mm. and working in agriculture I mean you're not doing that now but if you don't write it and you don't write it beautifully, it may be forgotten. And this labor just goes unnoticed and unremarked and left out of history books. So I think that a lot of what you're doing as an artist is um, commemorating as well. 
bearing witness. Well, thank you. And I think you too. I mean, I, I know that, you know, it's where you and I are of different generations, but we've experienced the same kind of racism in places where that or that's surprising. And I, I see women like you and writers like you who have gone through this and who are exposing these stories to be sort of the trailblazers for me because then it makes it okay for me to write about these really like painful experiences. Well, thank you. That makes me very happy to hear. (laughs) (laughs) I Um, mean, I mean to know that to, I mean, I'm not saying that, that the fact that you went through all that you went through in South, in South Dakota was like good. But what I'm saying is, is that the fact that you wrote about it makes me feel a little bit like I'm not alone for having written all of the things that I felt about being discriminated against in Pittsburgh, you know? Well, I, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad that it has, um, some larger purpose and I'm, and, and, um, I, I hope that that is the case. Um, I have, I found a piece that I could read if you would like, that kind of is part of my bearing witness. Yes, um, phase. Well, um, so I thought of a piece, Rochelle, that I thought um, might be appropriate to read of my work. It's forthcoming um, in the offing, the online journal, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a, it's a kind of a lyric essay that talks about family and bearing witness and what it be- means to be um, a mixed race woman in America and the kind of um, burdens and history we carry. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole piece is called Chick Flicks for the Miscegenated Woman. <laughs> and I thought I'd just read the first part uh, for you right okay. now. Okay. And the first part is called Step. The story went that my great-grandmother cried so much and so loudly for three months that her family finally unbound her feet. Mm. Because her family were northern Chinese, Shandong people, and tall, my great-grandmother's feet had been bound at an especially young age, when she was about three years old. The big toe was left as is, and the four smaller toes crushed towards the pad of each foot, and then tight strips of cloth were tied around her foot, pushing the toes towards the heel. The point was to break the arch and to prevent the foot from ever growing, so that it would remain the ideal size of a three-inch golden lotus. Wealthy families had been binding their girls' feet since the Tang Dynasty in the 8th century A.D., and my great-grandmother's family had had no intention of stopping. After all, who would marry a girl with big feet? (laughs) Not a man from a wealthy family, only a poor man who needed a wife to work in his fields. But my great-grandmother cried so ferociously that her family began to seek new solutions. This was the late 19th century, and people's ideas were beginning to change. American missionaries had come to Shandong. They brought Western medicine and established hospitals and co-educational schools. When they came to my great-grandmother's family's compound, her family was not particularly interested in their tales of heaven and hell, but they listened when the missionary said they could help the youngest daughter. They promised to educate her in the Western style, which was considered modern and daring, and they promised that she would be able to find a husband when she grew up, a man who would not care whether a girl's feet were large or small, because he, too, would have been educated in this manner. Mm. So my great-grandmother's family decided to take this risk. They unbound her feet and let the missionaries educate her in this new American style, and when she was old enough, she married a Chinese man educated in this new way, too. And when my grandmother was born, no one tried to bind her feet. Mm. She was educated alongside her brothers, and she became one of the first eight women in China admitted into a public university in 1920. Mm. I know this story because my great-grandmother told her daughter, my grandmother, who told my mother, her daughter-in-law, who told me. However... I don't even know my great-grandmother's name. The only records we still have list her simply as Ms. Shao. Historians now think that foot-binding began in the Tang Dynasty in imitation of the toe shoes that an emperor's favorite concubine wore. She was a dancer, but this detail was forgotten. All the girls whose feet were molded and broken to fit into her fetishized shoes would never dance a day in their lives. So that is the oh. first section of my essay, Chick Flicks for the Miscegenated Woman. Wow. Um, wow. And that's, that is going about on about the, the Chinese side of the family um, and how, you know, they broke this 
the foot-binding tradition um, because of this intervention with America and this kind of globalization in the 19th century, mm. which had some positive things like education for girls and Western-style mm. medicine spreading, but also some negative consequences like colonization in terms of religion. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, which I explore in, la- in later parts of the essay because there's plenty of misogyny in, you know, in Christianity to go around. <laughs> right, right. And it makes me think of a discussion I had with my students in China. Um, I was teaching at Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou. I was teaching creative writing, and uh, part of my curriculum was to teach about the representations of Chinese people in American literature. Um, so I taught um, Pearl S. Buck's The Good Earth, because I mm-hmm. thought... Well, I mean, this is like ground zero for representations of Chinese in American literature. And I remember thinking to myself, they were horrified. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember thinking to myself that this was this was like a point of discussion and I also thought, well, I I I felt at the time that Pearl S. Buck was being like she was doing something because she was inside of China and so being inside mm-hmm. of China and knowing the language and there were all these things that she was doing that was right. And then one of my students said to me, well, that's still sort of offensive. Like her representation yeah. of us is still offensive. And I, you know, I let the students have the conversation because I didn't know any better. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to give them context or, you know, this is what, this is what America thinks. Point. Of, yeah, yeah, starting point. This is what America thinks. And one of my students, a lot of them were like, oh, this is, a, this is, this is interesting. And this is what we look like from the outside and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And one of my students was just appalled by it. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking that is the kind of reaction that I think I, I, I was expecting to see from more of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. It is kind of. I mean, one of the issues with um, the Earth. I mean, it was written in a different era too. So, re- mm. you know, reading it, writing from you know nearly a hundred years ago is always somewhat painful, right? You know, because there's going to be things that don't translate into the present. Um, but I actually have taught the Good Earth the movie mm-hmm. in some of my classes, and I remember once. Um, um, oh, I don't know if you've seen the film. It's it's got it's all yellow face. The, the oh, two yeah. actors who play oh, the, yeah. play the two main characters are white people. You know, in co- made to semi look like space aliens. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, with the taped eyes oh, and yeah. the you know the oh god, it's so awful. And then they speak in this very stilted way, mm. and um, mm. the woman, especially Olan, is made to be very subservient mm. and very weak. And this goes to you know the one of the core stereotypes in America of Chinese women is being very weak and submissive, mm. which from a Chinese point of view is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like bitterly <laughs> funny because, of course, no Chinese woman thinks of herself as submissive <laughs> or, you know, weak. I mean, ev- the view of Chinese women in China is that Chinese women are really strong. Right. Um, yeah. They hold so, up I mean, the sky. So you go back to these core <laughs> texts that create the image of an entire race in the United States and it's just such the opposite of how people see themselves. Right. Yeah, it's it's and it's such a it you know, it's such a trip to to have those conversations with students in China and to see like where their positions on those things are. And of course these are they they were English majors at the university, so they, mm-hmm. they had they could have decent conversations on multiple levels about the context of the source text but they were just you know it was it was very interesting um but i have to tell you as awful as the movie is it's still one of the movies that my mom and i will sit down and watch together and isn't that isn't that no it's totally it's a bad thing the same way we watch the ten commandments together i don't know what it is it's like old films just like uh, we sit together and watch, drink coffee and watch these old films. And my mom, you know, my mom isn't, she's not educated like me or whatever. And and we'll watch it and I'll tell her, mom, this movie is totally like awful. Like the way, and we'll point it out and be like, oh, look what they did to them there. Isn't that awful? And mm-hmm. oh, look, you could tell this. But, but for my mom, I think, and what we would talk about is like how closely related the story of Olan is to actually our family. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother, who had 13 kids and was straddled down, you know, to a farm, you know, and so I'm not saying I'm not saying any of it's right. And I'm not saying any of it. I'm just saying, man, it's complicated. 
Right. And the thing I think that, that Pearl Buck did well and that, you know, to a certain extent, the Hollywood filmmakers tried to do was to have empathy for the downtrodden mm. in a way that we don't really see today. Like, we don't see movies about farm workers today, do mm-hmm. we? <laughs> but, you know, the hero of The Good Earth is the resourceful, you know, farmers of China who overcome great adversity from, you know, exploitation by the landowners to, you know, locusts to war, and they still manage to survive and to scrimp and to save and, and save for the next generation so the next generation can do better. Um, and, it, and, and their hard work isn't really appreciated. Right. Um, and so the film and, the, you know, the book try to bear witness to that. Which, again, is like, you know, people who work in fields are not really seen by the larger culture. So I could totally see why your mother would relate to this story. Um, you know, <laughs> if you come from a, you know, a farm worker background, or if you've done any agricultural work, this is a story that centers that life and says, look at this hard work. Oh, my God, look at how resourceful you have to be. Right. Um, it right. Just unfortunately does it with really bad makeup. <laughs> But it's just really, really racist and totally awful. (laughs) It is. It's completely, I mean, it's when you learn what racism is and you you Mm -hmm. decide that you understand it and you move forward through the world, it's like everywhere around you, there's this overt racism and this overt sexism and this overt classism. And I, I, for me, for a while, I was dealing with it okay. And then... Luckily, I got pregnant and had my baby because having a baby and dealing with the family makes you sort of, for me anyway, it made me able to erase all of that stuff that felt like it was going to start driving me crazy. You don't have time. (laughs) You're working full time. You know, you're creating art and you have a little baby. You have no time for this other stuff. It all falls away because you can't do it all. I was going to say, you had asked me if I had a favorite poem. Yes. Yes. So I found a poem that um, I did not write, but that I really like, and I thought it kind of spoke to our conversation. Okay. Um, it's called, and if so, if you'd like, I could read that. Yes, please. Okay. So I don't know if you've ever heard of No One Ever Tried to Kiss Anime Wong by the poet John Yao. No. Okay, so I will read it to you. Okay. Um, she's trying to find a way to turn her cup upside down while sequestered on a train from Dublin to Vienna. Every angle glistens from behind a celluloid scrim. She's wearing a crescent scarf and chilly, snake-high smile. Others claim she is all skin and eyes. No longer lashed to this oily chatter, I enter her compartment. She is languishing on a ledge, annoyed at all the times she's been told to be scratched kicked, slapped, bitten, stabbed, poisoned, and shot. Lightning flickers between the frames. On the seat beside me, I find a circle, smaller than the one left by a wet apple. (laughs) And that is, no one ever tried to kiss Anime Wong by John Yao. (laughs) And I thought that this was um, appropriate for our theme today, but also I didn't know you were going to bring up um, The Good Earth. Um, <laughs> anime Wong was um, the first, and for a very long time, only Chinese-American movie star. I don't know if you've ever seen any of her work. Mm-mm. She was discovered in the 1920s and starred in some silent movies. Um, her most famous film was um, Joseph von Sternberg's Shanghai Express, which starred Marlena Dietrich. Yes, I know that anime movie. Wong played Yes, her Chinese friend on the train. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was a moment when it should have launched Anime Wong into superstardom, but instead her career languished um, uh. because of racism in Hollywood. Uh. And that's what the poet John Yao is referring to. No one ever tried to kiss Anime Wong because it was illegal for anyone to kiss Anime Wong in a movie. Uh. Um, beginning in 1922, it was illegal to show any... Um, so-called miscegenation, mixed-race couples on uh. the screen, um, because it was considered, of course, offensive um, in the United States to see mixed-race couples. And so since they weren't going to have a movie starring all Chinese people, the mm. only way Anime Wong could be the lead was if the um, male movie star could fall in love with her character. And because the male movie star is always white, that could never happen. Uh. Therefore... 
she could never be, you know, she could never get these other roles. And so the the good earth was a particularly bitter pill for her because here, for the first time, they were making a movie about Chinese people Uh and about a Chinese family. And Uh so she auditioned for the role of Olan, and they wouldn't give it to her. Um, And the studio head said, oh, it's because by then they said she's too old. But she wasn't too old. She was still, you know, quite young. She was um, in her early 30s. Um, but the the problem was, and it was, they wouldn't admit, but everyone knew it, was that they'd already cast the male lead, uh, and it was Paul Muni, and he's mm-hmm. white, so that mm-hmm. meant that the, his wife also has to be white because of the anti-miscegenation laws. Um, yes, so... I did, um, not, I did not know that I, at all. Whoa, you just blew my mind. Yeah, so poor Anna Mae Wong. She, um, <laughs> and I really, she's, I don't know if you, if you can look up any of her films, she's amazing. And she really fought the good fight. Uh. Not only was she beautiful and very skilled, I mean, she was a very naturalistic actor at a time period when a lot of people, you know, did very exaggerated movements. <laughs> but, um, you know, they said they didn't like her L.A. accent because she was born and raised in Los Angeles. So she went to England and she studied with a voice coach so that she could speak with a perfect British Oxford-style uh. accent, <laughs> right? And so then, um, you know, they, she, she worked in Europe and she learned to speak four or five different European languages uh. so that she could get stage roles and so that she could work uh. in talkies over in Europe. And then she comes back to America with all this experience and stars, you know, or has a supporting role in Shanghai Express and it's a huge international hint hit and she still can't get hired um so then she starts producing her own films Mm. you know she never gives up and she starts producing these they know they're considered b movies because they didn't have quite the budget and then she starts producing movies for other chinese and you know she's she's trying to show realistic depictions of chinese in america and these kind of chinatown films um and then you know that still didn't take off so then she decided to shoot a documentary and she hires her own crew and she goes to china to look up her family's ancestral village and she's shooting this documentary at the same time that they're shooting The Good Earth because there's supposed to be interest in China and it still can't get her hired and so she comes back to America and she just never gives up. She she donates all of her film proceeds um, to the war effort and to help um, uh, Chinese orphans because China was uh, truly suffering during World War II. Right. And and she did all these good things. And then in the 50s, she even had her own TV show really? at one point. It didn't run for very long. But, I mean, I, I feel like she never gave up. Um, uh. She died young. She used all of her, you know, film proceeds to for good causes. And, you know, she, she supported her younger siblings to go to school in a way that she could not do because she had started working as a teenager. Um, she took care of her parents. Um, she was a really good person, but... You know, she could not overcome the racism of the era. And it is our loss. It is our loss because it would have been, she's so talented. You know, we could have, just think of all the movies that we don't get to see because Hollywood was so racist back in the day when this amazing, amazing, talented, you know, creature comes along. No, I mean, that is, I mean, it's remarkable. And, you know, it's, it's so ridiculous that this is the story of so many women of color in the United States for so many different reasons. Yes, yeah. unto the present, unto the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, just hearing you talk about her stuff, I mean, the reason why I moved to China was because it was the only full-time job that I could get. Everything else was part-time, and I, so many interviews, mainly so many interviews, and passed 